0: Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The LEM footprints are only uh, uh, depressed
1: in the surface about uh, one or two inches. It's July 20, 1969, and the world is holding its breath as astronaut Neil Armstrong is about to go where no one has gone before. It's one small step Neil Armstrong's words as he first set foot on the moon were a declaration of hope in humanity, a belief that we had placed our foot on the first rung of a ladder that would take us further into the marvel of the universe. That hope still runs deep for those involved in the space industry today, and we'll be speaking to someone who's been as high as that ladder currently goes. But what will we find as we go further? More planets for us to colonize, resources for us to use, intelligent life? Will we find a crisis for religion, for Christianity in particular? Faith in Christ was formulated at a time when Roman roads, not rockets, were considered a great innovation. Some would say that an ancient faith will not survive outer space. God's love for humanity, shown in the life, death, and resurrection of a first century Jew, is too parochial, too small to be relevant to a universe potentially brimming with sentient life. Outer space might end up being God's graveyard. Or will it? I'm John Dixon, and this is Underceptions. <laughs> Underceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academic's new book, *The Theology of Paul and His Letters* by Douglas Jane Moo. Every episode here at Underceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, certainly today we'll be trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. And today we've got a giveaway to help promote the show. Lovely listeners, go to Apple Podcasts write a review of Undeceptions, and really it can be negative, but I'd like it to be positive, then send us a screenshot of what you wrote and we have a free hardcover copy of my new book, Bullies and Saints, for the five best written reviews. Producer Kaylee is going to pick the winners and extra points for using the Oxford comma. Details in the show notes for this episode. Now back to the show. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime, What Investigating Death Teaches Us About the Meaning of Life, by acclaimed cold-case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders... Firing chain is armed. Sound suppression water system activated. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. As of September 2021, a total of 578 people from 41 countries have gone into space. One of this very special club is astronaut Colonel Jeffrey Williams. He's flown four missions, orbited the Earth nearly 3,000 times, Man, that's hard to take in. And he's done five spacewalks for a total of more than 30 hours, just hanging out there in space. With 534 days in orbit, Williams held the American record for the most time spent in space, a record only surpassed in 2017 by his colleague, Peggy Whitson. Despite all that, Jeff says he never dreamt of becoming an astronaut.
0: No, I have to admit that I grew up on a farm in northern Wisconsin, and it probably never occurred to me. I was uh, I enjoyed life. I re- have great childhood memories. I love the outdoors. Uh, I, I was uh, taught carpentry from my grandfather. Of course, we were doing farm work as well. So uh, the the uh, uh, I did have an interest in science and math early on, and that grew into an interest in engineering. Uh, But at the time, I never considered even flying, even uh, being a pilot at that time. That that came a little bit later uh, after I left Wisconsin and entered
1: the military academy at West Point. Founded in 1802, West Point is America's oldest military academy. It educates cadets for commissioning into the U.S. Army.
0: Once I got there, I got exposed to all kinds of things in the military, of course, to include flying, Uh, Many of my instructors uh, were uh, helicopter pilots that had just come back from the Vietnam War. This was 1976. Uh, And all of that was an inspiration to me.
1: Jeff followed that inspiration to become first an army pilot and then eventually a test pilot. He was selected as a NASA astronaut in 1996 and flew his first mission to the International Space Station in the year 2000. And he remembers that first liftoff like it was yesterday.
0: It was in May of uh, 2000 on the space shuttle Atlantis. It was the third flight to the space station. As I said, we were a crew of seven. I was the only rookie on the crew. One of the warnings that I got from uh, my crewmates was uh, things happen so fast and you're so overly saturated with sensations, you know, that it's very difficult to, uh, to take it all in. Uh, but having thought through that and having had an extensive career in flying and flying different aircraft and different, having those different kinds of experiences, I think that that conditioned me to be able to take it in. Five,
1: four, three, two, one, zero, and liftoff of Space Shuttle Atlantis on a mission to build, resupply, and to do research on the International Space Station.
0: And there's not a single sensation, it's a continuum of sensations. You know, you, you're leading up to the, to the liftoff, and then the main engine starts six, en- six seconds before liftoff. And the whole thing rumbles and shakes, and then liftoff happens, and then it, the rumbling and shaking goes in order of magnitude greater. Uh, and then you, you watch the ground drop away, and I was able to see that. I was in the, the uh, flight engineer seat, so I looked over my shoulder and watched the beach of Florida drop away. Um, and then we were off to the races and then a few minutes later we, we, uh, we had started flying where, and those, we flew the shuttle where we were heads down and then we rolled the heads up uh, several minutes into the, into the ascent into space and you could, uh, so you got a great view of the East Coast so you could see it like you see a globe, you know, that only uh, see uh, the different uh, uh, the shapes of the coastlines of the East Coast. Uh, and and we're, we're above the clouds at that point, so the, the sky was brilliantly blue, and then the blue faded to black, and you knew you were leaving the atmosphere and entering space, and the acceleration just continued, and in a little less than nine minutes, you're in orbit, and the, the main engine's cut off. but now you're in weightlessness. You're, now you're feeling weightlessness for the first time and it's sustained, it never it doesn't go away. It's not like a roller coaster where you get a couple seconds of, of feeling light in your seat or whatnot. You're weightless and, and you're there. Uh, and it was not too long where I had to get out of my, unstrap the belts and get out of my seat and start the process to get out of the spacesuit or do the prepara- to do the activities that we had to do after launch. Um, and I, and I could already see out the window at this point. But when I got out of my seat, then I could see the full view, and I got the, the glimpse of the Earth for the first time. And I just remember it, it just in vivid detail, uh, as if it was yesterday. And since then, of course, spent a year and a half in space, and I spent a lot of time in the window, took a lot of pictures, and it's never gotten old. It is a, it is the most amazing part of uh, the whole thing is to, is to see the globe of the earth from that vantage point and then take in all the detail over time. Of course, the adrenaline is flowing. It's, it's like, wow, look at this, you know, with all of the, the you know, and I'm, I'm gonna understate it, right, but to, you, this is amazing. Uh, combined with, I can't believe I'm, this is actually happening. You know, after all these years of working toward it, uh, here we are, this is unbelievable. Uh, but how amazing it is. And and you feel this overwhelming sense of gratitude. Uh, at least that's what I felt.
1: Space has a profound effect on the human mind. It always has. Director Mark and I once visited the deserts of Kharkoum in southern Israel, where there are these amazing 5,000-year-old rock paintings with human figures' arms raised upwards in praise of Of the stars in the night sky do you remember that mark i do i do but i didn't know what they were until you told me (laughs) the sheer immensity of just our galaxy in comparison to the tiny blue marble we call home is enough to set the mind spinning in
2: wonder our galaxy is very large it contains hundreds of billions of stars So our sun is far from the only star. Our sun is about halfway from the center of the galaxy to the edge. uh, And it would take about 70,000 light years to travel from where we are to the center of the galaxy. So light travels very fast, but it still takes time. So if you could travel at the speed of light, it would still take you 70,000 years just to get to the middle of the galaxy.
1: That's Deborah Hasmer, former professor and chair of the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Calvin University. She did her doctorate in astrophysics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and she's published her research on extragalactic astronomy and cosmology. Dr. Hasmer has studied large galaxies, galaxy clusters, the curvature of space, and the expansion of the universe using telescopes around the world and telescopes in orbit. One of her areas of specialty is exoplanets, you know, exoplanets.
2: So an exoplanet is an extrasolar planet. So it's a planet that doesn't go around our sun. So we know the planets in our solar system, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, all those. But in the 90s, we started discovering planets around other stars for the past 20 years There's been a lot of active research to discover more of these planets around other stars. And we've now discovered enough that we can um, do good estimates of how many planets there are in total in our galaxy. Um, We have detected them around a few thousand stars, but uh, we now know that they're typical enough that there must be planets around uh, billions of stars in our galaxy, maybe 100 billion planets They're very hard to detect and it takes some very specialized equipment. So the telescope observes the star um, more than the planet itself. And they can do it in a couple different ways. A way that's worked lately is you look for planets to be passing just in front of their star. So imagine looking at our solar system edge on and the planets are going around the star and uh, you can see the star just get a little bit fainter when the planet is in front of it. And then the star gets bright again when the planet goes around um, the other side. So it takes very sensitive measurements to detect that change in brightness in the star. And you have to monitor it for a long time to see, because first you see a planet go past, and then maybe you see a different planet go past. And you want to watch them come past a few times to make sure you know what's going on, what their orbits are. But you can then tell um, how far they are from their star, how massive they are. And from that, we can learn some things about what those planets um, are like.
1: And science, as well as science fiction, are very interested in the answer to that question. We must confront the reality that nothing in our solar system can help us.
2: Now you need to tell me what your plan is
0: to save the world. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it.
1: And this is the mission we were trained for.
2: I've got kids, Professor.
1: Get out there and save them. Christopher Nolan's blockbuster, Interstellar, built its plot on humanity's need to find an exoplanet. We could make our new home. But it's not just the plot of science fiction. In 2016, physicist Stephen Hawking said that humanity had 1,000 years to leave Earth and begin to spread among the stars or face extinction. The following year, he revised that figure to 100 years. And in this same time period, astronomers have located numerous bodies orbiting distant stars. But Deborah Hasmer points out, just because they're out there doesn't mean they're Earth 2.0.
2: And that's a really important distinction. Um, A lot of the planets that were first discovered were very extreme. Um, uh, Gas giants larger than Jupiter or planets much closer to their star than Mercury is to our sun. And so very hot and inhospitable to live in. But we now know that there are are a large number of planets that are similar to Earth in that they have about the same mass as Earth. So walking around in them, you'd have about the same gravity. And um, they're capable of supporting liquid water. So they're not so close to their star as to boil all the water off or so far from their star that all the water would be frozen. And those are the planets we're interested in because they're like us. And on those planets... um, how many of them are there? I believe it's something like on average, one planet per star out there is an Earth-like planet. They're quite common. So how does that play out? Well, um, it is when you're watching this tiny dot of a planet um, around going around its star, the star is so bright. It is very hard to measure what's happening on the planet itself but there are telescopes coming online that will help us measure the atmospheres of those planets. And that will give us a hint of what's going on there. You can look at the atmosphere of the planet and see if there's oxygen in it. Um, That's just one, this is just one way to study it. But on Earth, Earth's atmosphere has a good amount of oxygen, but that's produced from the life on Earth. And if we detect oxygen in an atmosphere of another planet, that's a good indicator of life from what we know about how um, atmospheric chemistry works. So that's one way to do it, Um, but it does take very sophisticated telescopes. There are though a large number of these planets and we're able to monitor thousands of them right now. So we have uh, quite a few to choose from in these studies.
1: There are a few intermediate steps we have to take before we can find a home on another planet. Step one is the space station, and Jeff Williams plays an ongoing role in that. His career has taken him from test pilot to astronaut and on to a staff position at NASA, where he now integrates international partners, oversees training programs, and assigns crew to the International Space Station.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm very... Grateful uh, in the outworking of uh, providence that I found this myself in this place, this time in history. The entire career uh, really spanned uh, the the development, uh, the building, and the uh, the implementation of the International Space Station program. So uh, we launched the first element in 1998. Um, I was uh, very much in the by that time, I had my initial training done uh, from '96, and I was very much involved in the development of the, the the final development of the space station elements. And then my first flight <clears throat> my first flight was in 2000, uh, when the station was in its infancy. There were only two modules there. It was before the first permanent expedition was launched uh, by uh, about six months or so. Uh, so um, my f- first exposure to the space station in orbit uh, was really before we we put a permanent crew on it. Uh, so very early. The next time I came back was for six months, and uh, that was about halfway through the building of the space station. It was after the Columbia accident. The space shuttle was grounded. We had gone to a, uh, to a minimum crew, so we were a crew of two. Uh, so my crewmate was a, a Russian, uh, and during those years, we had one Russian, one American on board just to sustain the station while we got the uh, the space shuttle flying again to resume assembly. Uh, and we resumed uh, the flying of the shuttle during that stay in 2006 uh, and began assembling the station again. Uh, and then uh, I went back in 2009 into the spring of 2010, and we essentially finished the assembly during that time so here there was in the the first exposure right at the beginning and then halfway through the assembly and then at the end of the assembly and then 2016 it's in its full operational mode Uh, all of the international partners are are participating and involved we got supply ships coming and going uh the uh, experimental load uh, is significantly increased so i've been very blessed with uh, having the span of my career really cover the the, uh, the entire story of the International Space Station. And the International is key a key element of that too, which I, you might get into, uh, that's <laughs> been just as interesting and intriguing and, and uh, fascinating as uh, the technology of spaceflight
1: itself. The space station is, of course, a political endeavour as well as a scientific one. It's part of a new space race, not to the Moon, but to Mars. Dozens of unmanned orbiters, landers and rovers have been sent to Mars by the United States, the former Soviet Union, now Russia, Europe, India and the United Arab Emirates. In May this year, right in the middle of our worldwide pandemic, China landed their Tianwen-1 rover on the surface of the Red Planet. It's part of a huge series of projects of the China National Space Administration. In June, China launched the first stage of its Tiangong space station, which by 2022 is set to be the world's second long-term home for humans in space. According to Jeff Williams, these orbital space stations have always been the key to humanity reaching out to other planets. In fact, back in the 1950s, it was NASA's ambition to build a space station first and then use that to get to the moon. But the Soviet Union got into orbit first in 1957. That's when the cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin famously remarked, I looked and looked and looked but I didn't see God. Well, that's the story anyway. I'm not sure anyone actually verified it. But the success of the Soviet Union is certainly what put pressure on President John F. Kennedy to pull a rabbit out of the hat or a rocket out of Cape Canaveral.
0: He needed a short-term political victory and uh, the intelligence uh, suggested that we would be neck and neck with putting together a space station. But we had a, a really good um, opportunity to win the development of a moon rocket uh, with the Soviet Union and then and, and get get to the moon for the first time, uh, be, to beat them to the moon. So that was the, the race to the moon, the, the space race of the 60s, which everybody's uh, very familiar with. The intelligence was correct. Uh, we developed the Saturn V and all of the elements necessary to leading up to uh, the moon uh, launch. Of course, we we had the tragedy of the Apollo One fire and lost that crew. That was a, a setback, uh, but it was still the schedule uh, made the end of the 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 decade there. The nineteen sixty nine. Uh, in parallel with that, the Russians were developing their N one moon rocket. They had a catastrophic uh, explosion of that prototype, the first rocket on the launch pad. They gave up the race at that point and focused on space station. Uh, so we won the the race to the moon. Um, and then after that, uh, all the political support kind of went away, but out of that came, okay, yeah, we're gonna develop the space shuttle. The whole purpose of the space shuttle, and many people didn't realize it for many years, was to put up a space station. But we didn't get to the space station till the first first shuttle flight was 1981 The space station uh, began launching elements in 1998 long time and space station freedom was uh, in development in the 80s Reagan announced it in 84 couldn't get political support again it didn't get the support it needed until the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, and then we brought them on as a partner, Uh, but it went back to that original vision of uh, getting a space station up. Now, what's the purpose of the space station? The International Space Station, I say, has three primary products, I think. One is it's an orbiting laboratory. I think that's the obvious one to most people. So we're doing lots of science and research across the spectrum of science. A big component of that is human research. We're learning what the how to, uh, what the environment does to the human body uh, so we can develop countermeasures so that then we can go farther and, and safely, you know, because we when, when we send a crew out, we want them to return safe. Uh, and we have to develop countermeasures to be able to uh, to do that in a reliable way, in a sustained way, and, uh, and protect the crew members. Uh, Reliability a, is a big um, uh, problem. You know, it's new technology. The technology has to work. It has to perform the way it's designed. Uh, and it has to be reliable. It can't fail. I and mean, we have failures all the time in the space station, but it's designed to be able to supply replacement parts. And then we fix things and keep them going. Um, the space station is very difficult to supply, even in Earth orbit, 250 miles above the Earth, you know, launching rockets to get supply ships there. Well, it's going to be an order of magnitude more difficult in the moon and way beyond all of that uh, in difficulty in Mars. So the space station is a platform where we can develop the technology and the primary example that I can give is life support systems. They have to perform well and they have to be reliable. You can't fail. If they fail, then the crew is uh, is in danger. Um, so the, the space station is the perfect platform to develop that new technology to get the performance and the uh, Uh, and the reliability that we need to go to the moon
1: and eventually on to Mars. The moon, then Mars, and then beyond. Tech billionaire Elon Musk, who owns SpaceX, is already planning a self-sustaining city-like colony on Mars by 2040. He reckons it's essential humans reach for Mars and beyond before we encounter some kind of extinction event. There's likely to be another dark ages, which it seems, my guess is there probably will be at some point. Um, I'm not not predicting that we're about to enter dark ages, but that there's some probability that we will, particularly if there's a third world war. Um, Then we wanna make sure that there's enough of a a seed of human civilization somewhere else uh, to bring civilization back um, and perhaps uh, shorten the length of the dark ages. For some then, humans living on other planets isn't just a scientific dream, it's a practical necessity. As Musk puts it, we need to be laser-focused on becoming a multi-planet civilization. But here's the thing, what if we arrive and find we're not the first? Then the dilemmas will get very interesting, and one of them is, what does that mean for traditional religions like Christianity and their apparently singular focus on earth and its inhabitants. Whatever the practical problems, the spiritual problems are real. So let's talk about that after the break. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades. And access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students and offer a comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thank you. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Undeceptions podcast, and they've just launched Morling to Go, a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God. That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Morling to Go series and other study options hand picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to mauling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Mauling, by the way, is spelled M O R L I N G. edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Aliens. How might they present themselves? Assuming they don't just arrive on the Starship Enterprise. Whatever that is.
2: I prefer the concrete. The graspable, the provable.
1: You'd make a splendid computer, Mr. Spock. That is very kind of you, Captain.
2: We all think we want to find Spock, right? Wouldn't it be fun to talk to Spock? That'd be great. Um, But what's much more likely is that we're going to find bacteria. (laughs) Single-celled organisms. We know from the history of our planet that single-celled organisms arose very early in the history of our planet, not long after the uh, the planet cooled from its initial formation. And then it took billions of years before multicellular life arose. And then another many hundreds of millions of years before you get the kind of complex life that you'd be interested in. So when we're looking at other stars, we kind of expect to first see this bacterial life. And we hope for something more interesting, but that's where we're starting. That
1: might be where we're starting, but some would argue that with trillions of stars in the heavens and billions of exoplanets exposed to similar conditions as those on Earth, finding another intelligent species is a mathematical certainty. If nature obeys identical laws everywhere, then it follows that there must be other celestial cauldrons that have produced advanced life. Now, personally, I don't think anything exists by mere statistical likelihood. The divine will is what determines existence and non-existence. And that may well rule out life on other planets, or it may rule it in. But whether for mathematical reasons or metaphysical ones, some folks are pretty confident we will one day find someone or something out there to talk to
2: so first of all it will be a slow conversation Um, that's another thing assumed in science fiction that you can overcome all of the speed of light travel time the nearest extraterrestrial planet is just over four light years away so light has to travel there and back that's eight years that we would from us sending a signal maybe it's a radio signal so radio is another form of light takes time to travel there and then they have to come up with their answer and send it back to us So it's a very slow conversation. And then there's the translation issue. I don't know if you saw the movie Arrival. It was a great science fiction movie and it had aliens coming to Earth and uh, lots of challenges of communication. Uh, It turned out they communicated in these visual patterns that did not follow linear time the way we think of it.
1: Everything you're doing there, I have to explain to a room full of men whose first and last question is how can this be used against
2: us? Kangaroo. What is that? In 1770, Captain James Cook's ship ran aground off the coast of Australia, and he led a party into the country, and they met the Aboriginal people. One of the sailors pointed at the animals that hop around and put their babies in their pouch, and he asked what they were, and the Aborigines said, kangaroo. It wasn't until later that they learned that kangaroo means I don't understand. I really liked that, how they thought through the translation issues, and um, really getting in the mindset of a completely other sort of creature. Um, Another uh, book that I've really liked is the books of um, Mary Doria Russell, and she describes the space journey of a few Jesuit scholars and a few um, others who go along with them and traveling to first detecting an intelligence signal from another planet and then traveling there and meeting them and seeing how... God related to them, exploring some of those questions and talking a lot about what God was doing in the lives of these people as they're journeying there. And that was so um, uh, encouraging and fascinating to read because so much science fiction just assumes there is no religion. And for me as a Christian, a religious person, um, it's, it's disappointing that so much science fiction just assumes that the only religion might be some Uh, native tribe religion um, that's very primitive and that the world religions of today have become obsolete somehow. And that doesn't fit with my faith at all.
1: So how does the Christian faith cope with the idea of extraterrestrial life? Imagine we do discover rational life out there, or imagine if it first discovers us. What could my faith say to that? Well, it sort of depends on who it is we meet uh, and what they're like. Imagine they're a race of intelligent beings that's weaker than we are. If our own experience is anything to go on, it doesn't bode well for them. Human history is a sad story of the strong oppressing the weak. Babylon or Rome crushing other nations into pretended peace. Vikings raping and pillaging throughout France and England. Guys, we have to do a show on the Vikings and their conversion to Christianity. It's something I've been reading about. I love it. Or think of uh, our modern privileged West sourcing our luxuries at the expense of the poor. So here's the thing. Would it be any different if we discovered vulnerable life on some far-flung planet? My Bible tells me and experience tells me probably not. Light years aren't enough to separate us from our own human nature. C.S. Lewis once wrote, We are not fit yet to visit other worlds. We have filled our own with massacre, torture, syphilis, famine, dust bowls, and with all that is hideous to ear or eye. Must we go on to infect new realms? Alright, but what if we meet an alien race that was actually stronger than we are? And what if they did a quick survey of human history and decided that we don't deserve to belong to the United Federation of Planets, thanks to Director Mark for the Star Trek reference yet again. They decide to leave us banished in the universe and destroy any of us who attempt to go near them. Then I suppose we'll get our just desserts. We will have faced the just judgment of God in space. But there are more possibilities, and I think Christianity can cope with them too. What if we meet a race that has no moral faults, and therefore has no need of the salvation Christians cherish? Personally, I think that would be fabulous. I would quote the teaching of Jesus, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Assuming we didn't infect them, we'd have heaps to learn from them. Uh, How do we resolve conflicts? How do we love others as ourselves? These aliens would be a living sermon on the mount and we'd be better for it. Alternatively, we might meet a race that was every bit as mixed as we are, an inscrutable combination of selfish and altruistic. In that case, while some might see aliens, Christians would see brothers and sisters, fellow members of the League of the Guilty, They may, on the one hand, already have their own history of God's intervention and redemption, Uh, but if not, the church would have work to do. Again, C.S. Lewis thought about this and wrote, we might meet a species which, like us, needed redemption but had not been given it. But would this fundamentally be more of a difficulty than any Christian's first meeting with a new tribe of indigenous people? It would be our duty to preach the gospel to them, for if they are rational, capable of both sin and repentance, they are our brethren, whatever they look like. And I'm sure the theologians would be quick to chime in that the New Testament does in fact speak of Christ redeeming the cosmos, not just humanity. In Colossians 1 we read, For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to Himself." all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I think I accidentally just gave you a five-minute Jesus, so you can press play now.
2: I can tell you how I answer that as a Christian. So the Bible does talk about the specialness of humanity, of God's love for us and care for us. But the Bible actually, on the one hand, is very provincial it's all focused on one little spot in the Middle East. It doesn't address the rest of the planet. And it's all focused on the descendants of one family, the descendants of Abraham. And so the Bible is very local already. But the Bible is also very cosmic in its claims about God's sovereignty over all creation. it, And even of Christ's sovereignty, of Jesus Christ being present at creation and having a role in creating all things. The passages describing this use just very cosmic and overarching language that suggests anything in this universe, whether it was known to the people in the Middle East at the time of writing or not, like the whole shebang is all under God's sovereignty. So maybe people think, well, the scientific discovery, it might invalidate um, invalidate Christianity because Christianity is just about the earth. But I don't think that's um, what the Bible is teaching. I think the Bible is pretty clear that God is sovereign over all. So when we discover life out there as a Christian, I would believe that God created it. And therefore, I would respect it and um, care for it in appropriate ways, not seek its harm, and um, probably desire to communicate with it if it was interested in communicating back. Um, I would see it as a fellow creature um, now, how that fits with uh, some other theological things is another level, but um, at a basic level, life out there is things that we can celebrate and be curious about and look forward to discovering because it is all God's creation.
1: Professor Hasma agrees with the atheist Carl Sagan, who once said that space exploration leads directly to religious and philosophical questions. I think most things do, but especially space travel.
2: Yes, I think that's very true. And so for scientists, um, sometimes it's easy to just jump from the scientific to these broader implications without really thinking it through. And so we need the help of theologians, philosophers, Um, and just the broader public to think through some of the implications of what it would mean to discover life elsewhere. And of course, we we need the great scientific evidence and discoveries as well. So we need a better partnership. And the kind of polarization we see in our culture today that divides science from religion is really going to hamper questions like this. where you really want them to be coming together to get a, a better, more robust answer that will make sense for all of humanity.
1: Colonel Williams also sees an unfortunate polarization of science and religion. He thinks it's in part motivated not by the evidence of science, but by a desire to exclude God. The science itself only really bolsters his sense that there is a mind, personal intention behind the universe.
0: There is a cause. There's a first cause for everything we see, and when we get into the details, we see the intelligence and the logic and the ordering and things in, in everything we see. Even I use mathematics as an illustration to uh, to demonstrate order. I use music as an illustration to demonstrate order. I use physics. The fact that we can launch a rocket uh, from a place on the earth and we know precisely the moment we need to launch so that then nine minutes later we're going 17,500 miles an hour and hours or a couple of days later, we're rendezvousing with another spacecraft going 17,500 miles an hour, and we dock going about, you know, a couple inches per second or so at, at that relative speed, we can only do that because of the order in God's creation. Well, all of that, and I, I'm not even getting into the biology of life and all of that. I mean, we could go on forever and ever, but all of it screams of a first cause, an intelligent cause, so that's God. And you see headlines over the years occasionally that the uh, uh, possible evidence of life discovered on Mars or possible evidence of life discovered on a, on a rock found in Antarctica, which is a meteorite that came from Mars. And, you know, th- these are all one theory hypothesis upon another, upon another, upon another. Uh, and it's all motivated uh, because we have to show that we're here by chance
1: to rule God off the stage. Colonel William's point isn't that we can find God hidden in some far corner of space. That's the error of logic in the statement I mentioned earlier, often attributed to the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. I looked and looked and looked, but I didn't see God. There's reason to think he didn't actually say that, or even think it. He was apparently a believer of some kind. But the Kremlin did use his orbit in its propaganda against religion. I've seen a poster from the time that depicted Gagarin in space with the bold words written underneath, yet. there is no God. We'll put that poster in the show notes. Anyway, the whole concept is just dumb. If you found a God in space, it just wouldn't be the God that classical philosophy and religion have been talking about for all these millennia. God is not a super being within time and space like Thor or Ra or Hercules. God is the reason for time and space. God is like the author of a story not a character in the story. God is the architect of the house, not a magic wardrobe hidden in the attic. Colonel Williams is saying, rightly I reckon, that it's the order, the mathematics, the comprehensibility of the material universe that point to the glorious author and architect of everything. Space exploration should inspire our awe toward God, but it won't bring us any closer to seeing God.
0: And a half. Contact light. OK, engine stop.
1: Listen, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, twang, twang, twang. Edwin Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon, took communion in outer space. He said, I wondered if it might be possible to take communion on the moon symbolizing the thought that God was revealing himself there too as man reached out into the universe. For there are many of us in the NASA program, he went on, who do trust that what we are doing is part of God's eternal plan for man. And on his return journey from the moon to earth, Buzz read aloud the words of Psalm 8. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? that thou art mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. Or a reading of Genesis 1 from Apollo 8.
0: We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Both my wife and I came to faith in uh, the late 1987, early 98 timeframe. And it was a profound transformation or profound change in perspective uh, of our life, philosophy of life, uh, with a a growing focus to prioritize our life to serve Christ and to uh, uh, to faithfully live out um, our lives Within our family, within our marriage, of course, raising our kids, but also uh, vocations, whatever opportunity. Of course, I was serving in the in the army at the time. Still, with all these goals and aspirations, and and you might think that well, then at that point your goals and aspirations shift. You know, a lot of people think, oh, okay, I got to go off now and serve in the church and do that full time or serve in the mission field. But but my my goals and aspirations didn't change. But I think the motivation for those goals and aspirations changed significantly. Uh, so yeah, I entered into the, the opportunity uh, with NASA with, uh, with a, a very strong and growing sense of calling. If you're informed with the record of the Creator's work in creation in, uh, from the Bible, and you believe it to be true, and I do, then you see really what you see through all of life, but particularly you see that view of the earth through that lens, through the lens of scripture. Uh, you can explain all of the history of civilization, all of technology and engineering uh, through that lens. The other aspect is space human spaceflight is a very humbling thing. We are very dependent on things working. That's a good thing. That's a proper thing. That's an appropriate thing. Um, because it's so hard to do this and because lives are at stake, it inherently keeps us corporately pretty humble as we approach these things. And occasionally we're humbled. We were humbled with the Challenger accident, we were humbled with the, uh, the Columbia accident, and uh, we're humbled even before that with the Apollo 1 fire. And we've, been, we've had close calls throughout the history of the program, and those are humbly experiences experience. It brings us back to our senses that we realize our dependency upon uh, many things. Ultimately, we're dependent upon the grace of
1: God. Dependence on the grace of God. It's a wonderful discovery, whether here on Earth or in outer space. Like what we're doing, spread the word by picking up an Undeceptions t shirt from the store or leave a review over at Apple Podcasts. Remember, the best written reviews, whether they're positive or negative, get a free copy of Bullies and Saints. And if you really like what we're doing, please consider donating through the website. Every little bit helps. Just in the last few days, I can see that listeners have sent us $65, uh, $10, $970, my goodness, thank you, uh, $29, and so on. Thanks to every one of you. I don't know if it sounds like it, but each episode of Underceptions costs roughly $3,000 to produce. And by the way, I don't personally take a cent. And we're really hoping to break even over the next few seasons. We're on track, but there's a bit of a way to go. So please head to underceptions.com and click donate. And while you're there, send us a question, even if it's just to ask, how on earth does this thing cost $3,000 an episode? And I'll try answer it later in the season. Next episode, we're giving you a crash course in the almost 500 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Some have called this period silent, at least spiritually speaking, but it's so full of action and reflection that we found it hard to keep to our time limit. Whatever that is. This is when you find the likes of Alexander the Great, the Maccabean Revolt, the origin story of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the rise of the synagogue, the precursor to church. And our guest reckons if you're not across what happened in this intertestamental period, you're going to miss quite a bit in the New Testament. But don't worry, we've got you covered. That's up next. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Spock Hadley. Editing by Richard Humwee. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of undeceptions.com, letting the truth out. An Undeceptions podcast. So how does the Christian faith cope with the idea of extraterrestrial. So how does the Christian faith cope with the idea of extraterrestrial? Extraterrestrial. Extraterrestrial. Can you just say alien? No, extraterrestrial. Terrestrial. 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 So how does the Christian faith cope with the idea of extraterrestrial life?
2: Yeah. Extraterrestrial. I can't say it.
1: Extraterrestrial Oh yeah Just because it's your favourite word Yeah 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 I use it at least three times a day